Hi, everybody. It's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome or welcome back to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. My story begins on a chilly Sunday morning in February 1970. Richard Nixon was president. Vietnam War was still raging. The hippie movement was at its peak. At a men's breakfast, you might see men dressed in dark satin shirts, bell-bottom jeans, tweed sports jackets, turtlenecks. Volkswagen Beetles dominated the road, and my family would drive one in the 70s, along with a Volkswagen camper van, which was awesome, as I recall, with a functional sink in it and a hammock that you could sleep in. It was incredible. I entered the world at 11.56 a.m. on February 22, 1970, at Abington Hospital, firstborn son to Charles and Florence Eckert. I weighed seven pounds, eight ounces, average. Having been born on February 22nd, I share a birthday with George Washington, our first president, Senator Ted Kennedy, actress Drew Barrymore, born five years later in 1975, and 76ers legend Julius Dr. J. Irving. Do we have any other February 22nd birthdays in here? No? Okay. Well, speaking of Philadelphia sports legends, my grandfather, Charles Buzz Eckert, pitched for the Philadelphia Athletics from 1919 to 1922. And on July 3rd, 1922, he pitched to Babe Ruth himself. Now, I wish the story could go on that he struck the Babe out in three straight pitches, sent him back to sit down. Instead, at the top of the seventh, Ruth blasted home run number 175 of his eventual 714. You might say the ball buzzed out of the park. Uh, that didn't dissuade my grandfather, though. He continued to pitch in the minors until uh, 1936. Then he became a pitching coach for the Detroit Tigers. Uh, my grandfather's family had emigrated to the United States from Germany, arriving at Ellis Island. And my mom tells a story that when she was dating my dad, she saw a family Bible that belonged to my grandfather in which his name, Charles William Eckert, was written Carl Wilhelm Erkart, which means at some point he must have Americanized his name, which also means that I may actually be Scott Erkart. Pretty interesting. My earliest memory from about the age of two or three is of looking into the crib at my newborn sister, Carolyn, and thinking, who is this interloper, and why are you getting all the attention now? Uh, I was saved at the age of four. You know, I didn't uh, have any decadence or debauchery, ages two or three. Uh, had certainly been acts of disobedience, no doubt. Uh, I remember that mom would read Bible st stories to me every night at bedtime. They were from this series of blue books. As a matter of fact, last week, I saw them still all lined up in my parents' bookshelf. I was like, those are the books that I'm going to talk about. But they had these cool illustrations and... Uh, you know, she'd read them every night, and you know, when she felt I was old enough to understand, she explained the gospel to me in simple terms, and I accepted the Lord. Unfortunately, though, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember it. 
But I do remember at the age of probably around seven, you know, it concerned me that I had no recollection. Just mom told me I accepted the Lord when I was four. So I remember being in the bathtub and praying really hard, you know, so that I could be on record in my mind that I told the Lord, I want to go to heaven. I believe I want to be saved. So uh, if not at age four, I had a bathtub conversion at age seven. <laughs> uh, I attended Ben Salem Baptist Church at Rich, on Richley Road in Ben Salem. My mom was the pianist there. On Sunday morning, she would accompany worship and play beautiful offertories as the plate passed around. Uh, she used to teach uh, piano most weeknights too. And like a fool, I resisted taking lessons myself for free. Can you imagine how good I'd be right now? You can just picture being up there on stage Sunday mornings, maybe one week on guitar, the next week on keys, playing beautifully. But, you know, sorry, Daryl, I can't be of any help there. Probably play block chords. Um, I went to school at Lobos Christian Academy. Uh, you know, when I started kindergarten, classes were held at Ben Salem Baptist Church. I still remember my first day in September 1975, waiting nervously outside the church's back doors, clutching my little book bag, and Miss Rexon with her long, dark, straight hair coming and opening the doors and letting us in. Went to Lower Bucks my entire school experience. Um, uh, third grade, we moved to the Ben Franklin Middle School building in Levittown where I went all the way to 12th. I was baptized at age seven. I can remember being in the baptismal tank and looking out at this vast crowd, probably about the same amount as you guys here, uh, as I nervously said the verse. I don't remember what it was, but I was real nervous. I was able to say it. Around the same time, I had my church musical debut. Uh, I sung the song, a solo. I don't know how they managed to get me to do it. Uh, I am a promise by the Gaithers. Anybody know it? Okay, well, I remember it. And I'm gonna give you a little taste of what you missed in 1977. <laughs> I am a promise. I am a possibility. I am a promise with a capital P. I am a great big bundle of potentiality. And that's all. You'll always leave them wanting more, so I'm going to stop now. Thank you. So I'll, I'll say the next, I'll say, I'll quote the next lyrics. That goes on, I'm learning to hear God's voice, and I'm trying to make the right choices. I'm a promise to be anything he wants me to be. And as we'll see, these lyrics are going to take on greater significance as my life goes on. I also remember around the same time being in a kid's play at church. And one of my female castmates in a crowd scene where I had my line, said her one line, and then continued on to say everybody else's line. Now, probably, I wasn't thinking, unthinkingly, I made a kooky sign by my head in front of the, the whole church to express my displeasure. I paid a, what I do remember is paying a heavy, heavy price for this when I got home uh, from church that day. Uh, from a very young age, I can remember wanting to serve the Lord and share the gospel and wanting to be a pastor. My mom tells me that it was probably around this, this age, definitely when I was in the single digits of age. And she says, my grandmother, her mom was so proud. She used to go around bragging to people, my grandson wants to be a pastor. And my mom would say, stop, stop. You're gonna, you know, what if he changes his mind? You're gonna you know, put pressure on him. I also remember my other grandmother, had a, a book I was fascinated with. It was about Billy Graham's Crusades. It was a black book, and on the cover, Billy's, like, his brow was furrowed in prayer. He's praying, and inside there were pictures of all the stadium crowds and people pouring to the front to accept the Lord. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, I, I also would take a book out of the school library, uh, which was about, it was a biography of the 
evangelist Billy Sunday. Anybody ever heard of him? He was this baseball player who turned into a fiery evangelist. I'd love to read his story. Um, I started to get actively involved in church at around the age of 11. Our church, Ben Salem Baptist, had a bus ministry where they'd send a fleet of buses out in the Ben Salem area to, to take people to church on Sunday morning. So I asked, you know, hey, can I be involved in that? And they let me. Uh, so I was partnered with Cliff Jones, who was Lower Bus Christian Academy's janitor, and his route was in Doral Apartments. It's now called Creekside Apartments in Ben Salem, right by the Philadelphia Mills Mall. So every Saturday morning, we'd get out and we'd go in his Dodge Dart, drive to Doral and go around door to door, you know, knocking on doors and inviting people out to church on the bus the next morning. Um, I'll never forget uh, one apartment we went into. They had a, their pet bird, not caged, that was flying around wildly through the apartment. Like, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it kept swooping down towards my head, like it would swoop towards my head. And so I kept trying to protect myself and you ward it off, but the owner thought this was hilarious. Oh, oh, it's so funny, he wants to sit on you. And so I thought, well, you know, to be a good testimony, I don't want to offend a person, I don't want to offend a bird, so I'll let it land. So the thing got its wish, and it then for the entire 30 minutes of this visit, this thing proceeded to walk around and perch on my head. This experience, has led to a disgust with and hatred of birds, <laughs> intense, passionate hatred of birds that lasts to this very day. Chicken gets an exception because it's delicious. I love chicken. I also remember being set upon by a group of teenage hooligans as I had separated from Cliff. I think Cliff had said, well, why don't you go hand out some tracks and flyers at the, the door? So these guys surrounded me and they were like, oh, you have a bug on your neck. And they whacked me in the back of the neck. Oh, I missed it, there's bad. And they all would take turns, so I don't know. Somehow I got out of there. I don't know, my wits or somehow, but my neck was killing me. Um, I also remember the, one of the first times I tried to share the gospel at Doral Apartments. It was to a British guy. He'd opened the door. He was standing in the, uh, the door of his apartment. And I remember I kind of nervously said, uh, if, if you died tonight, where would you go? And I'll never forget his response to the incinerator. <laughs> That's where he was bound. Uh, the bus ministry gave me my first preaching experience. You know, we had a little devotional like this on Saturday mornings uh, before we go out on our route, so I remember giving my little devotional. Uh, it also provided me with my first experience of leading worship. I would, uh, as the bus was driving, which looking back was probably extremely unsafe, I would lead the songs as we'd drive, you know, from Doral back to Ben Salem Baptist. Crowd favorites were Father Abraham and this little light of mine with emotions. Everybody enjoyed those too. <laughs> so in addition, in addition to the bus ministry, I also got involved in Tuesday night visitation where, you know, people would fill out visitor cards on Sunday mornings and you'd go visit them. Uh, I also got involved as a Sunday school helper, sometimes teacher, where I tried my hand at Christian ventriloquism. <laughs> Now, perhaps strangely, I thought it was cool at the time. So I got my own dummy for the purpose, Willie Talk. Um, unfortunately, nobody was interested in watching the dummy on Sunday mornings. Nobody was interested in what the dummy had on his mind about Jesus and wanted to say. Their obsession of these kids was watching my mouth 
for the slightest twitch or movement that would suggest that I was the one making the dummy talk. So they caught me. They got me, all right? They go, it's you. You're the one doing it. So that was the end of that promising career. Uh, the only use then for Willie was to comfort my younger brothers long after mom had tucked them into bed. Many nights in the darkness, Willie's head would peek around the door <laughs> and say, good night, Todd. I'll be watching you tonight. <laughs> I'm sure that helped him. The knowledge that Willie would be around in the night helped him to get to sleep better. That's what I thought would be helpful. <laughs> um, in 1983, Ben Salem Baptist got a new pastor, Dolphus Price, the most amazing name I've ever heard, Dolphus. Has anybody ever heard of a... Dolphus before? No. no, neither have I. Well, he was from Alabama, and he had been a traveling evangelist before coming to the church. Um, I remember he would hold tent revivals. <laughs> he had his own gigantic tent, and we'd set it up behind the church on the summer, and it sawdust in the aisles, and uh, it was cool, but I remember thinking, like, it was so hot. I'd be like, you know, we got a modern building, like, right over there. Why don't we, why don't we go in the modern building? But Dolphus instituted the Preacher Boy program for the young guys who felt called to be pastors, and he'd meet with us you know, periodically and give us advice. I remember giving a mini-sermon one night, a Preacher Boy night, uh, to, uh, you know, with the other Preacher Boys. When I think of Dolphus, though, I always think about one unfortunate incident. Uh, for some reason, I'd won the opportunity to go to a Christian camp, and I was being driven there by Pastor Price and his wife, Nellie. Now, uh, I was sitting in the back seat with an older guy, now, I had just bought a joke book at a flea market earlier, uh, and unbeknownst to me, the joke book was not age-appropriate or appropriate for people of any age. <laughs> so I was reading jokes to amuse everybody during the ride. And uh, I came to one joke that uh, in my naivete, I said, I don't get this one, it's not funny. I then proceeded to read a wildly, outrageously unspeakable joke to my pastor and his wife, Nellie. There was dead silence in the front of the, the car. The older guy elbowed me across, like, shut up. <laughs> I'm still embarrassed about that to this day. Uh, I went to college at Philadelphia College of Bible, now Karen University, and majored in the pastoral studies program. Uh, I thought I'd become a youth pastor and ultimately then a lead pastor. Former Grace Point pastor Chris McCluskey was in a number of my pastoral classes. Uh, Roger Peterson, master storyteller at One Winter Night, taught my public speaking class in which I will never forget a guy's meltdown. He did not want to give that speech and he was up there. I remember he, had, he was clutching the podium and literally his whole body was violently shaking. Perspiration was pouring down his face in rivulets. You know, I remember his torment became everybody's torment in the entire room, and I remember praying, God help him. And I prayed this morning that wouldn't be me this morning. I prayed, God help me. Don't let that be me this morning. Um, so uh, I also had Greek and Hebrew classes, homiletics classes. Um, during college, I worked with the youth ministry at Calvary Baptist Church on Green Lane in Bristol. They had, uh, their ministry was called The Warehouse. They met in this big building, a warehouse to the side of the church, and they had a cool gigantic basketball court and a stage area and a snack area. The youth pastor's name was Tim Geisler. I did this for my pastoral studies internship and also, of course, to serve the Lord. Um, played guitar touring worship times. We did these great songs like Shut the Doe by Randy Stonehill and Awesome God by Rich Mullins. 
One of the most significant things was there I met a very young Daryl Benjamin, who, <laughs> as I recall, would play the drums uh, for worship there. Our lives would intersect later. Um, after graduation, to my dismay, I was unable to find any local youth pastor jobs. You know, PCB had a list of churches that were you know, looking for pastors. And every one of them was in this, the far, this far-flung place like Ohio or Michigan. No offense to anybody you know, from Michigan, but I, I didn't want to go. You know, I'm like, this is the greater Philadelphia metropolitan area. Like, where are the jobs? Like, I want to work around here. You can't be telling me there's no pastoral jobs around here. Now, I would do this in a heartbeat now. Like, I'd be like, where, let's go. You know, I'll, I'll move. But so, I think 22-year-old guy sometimes. But uh, my inability to find a, a local church opening led my mom to express a concern she had. You know, she'd seen in, in her life a number of pastors get let go by their churches for whatever reason, and they'd struggle to find work. So she said, you know, maybe you'd want to think about having something you could fall back on just in case. You know, you can't find a job or, or you know, you do a bad job and they'd let you go. So... Uh, this seemed like a good idea. So I thought, what would I like to do? Okay, uh, I'd like to teach. Teaching would be fun. So I looked into it, and uh, I found that, you know, having taken all the, the gen ed classes at Philadelphia College of Bible, I could take three straight semesters uh, of education classes and get that education degree. So I returned to PCB to do that. And doing so, though I wasn't turning my back on my desire to be a pastor, in fact, uh, while I was back taking those classes, I was approached with the opportunity to become an interim pastor of a small Methodist church that had lost its pastor. It was uh, the Free Methodist Church of Willow Grove. It's located on Kimball Avenue, right by the Willow Grove Mall. Uh, I accepted the position and served as their interim pastor for almost two years. Uh, I conducted weekly church services where I'd lead, lead worship with my guitar and preach. I'd also minister to the congregation's needs. One of my responsibilities was home visits. I remember visiting one member who had this incredible Civil War rifle collection. I don't know how he got it, spent a fortune on it, but he showed me his collection. Uh, another young couple showed me video of the birth of their child, which was interesting and a little uncomfortable. Um, I graduated with the education degree, and since no local youth pastor jobs had presented themselves, I obtained my first teaching job at Cumberland Christian School in Vineland, New Jersey. There I taught Bible, U.S. history, and world history. Now, I'll just say this was a disaster, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Primarily, my first mistake, I did not follow through on my threats. I was telling my younger daughter who's taking education classes now, and she said, oh yeah, they tell you to do that. Don't, don't make a threat that you don't follow through on. Well, you know, I'd be like, if you do that one more time, you're out of here. All right, if you do it again, I mean it this time, you're gone. I mean it. And they'd still keep doing it. Uh, I remember, you know, this leading to chaos. At one point, I thought there was an electrical glitch in the classroom television that we use for morning announcements and teaching videos. It would turn on on its own. So I'd walk across, through, have to walk across the room, flip it off, come back, get started, go on again. Oh, do it. After five or six times, I happened to glance some guys in the back row cracking up, and then it, the light bulb went off. They brought in a remote control. They're messing with me. This leads to another terrible memory <laughs> along the same lines. Uh, it involves a girl we'll call Julie. Uh, as I was walking into the classroom one day, I saw Julie outside talking with a friend. She was wearing a jean jacket with the sleeve dangling, you know, where I couldn't see her hand. <clears throat> so as I passed by, I made a little jokey comment, and 
I, I don't know why. You know, maybe because it was a history class, I just said, oh, did you lose your arm in the war? As I walked through it, bye. So um, I was organizing my materials at my desk when Julie comes up and she says, Mr. Ecker, can, can I talk to you? I said, uh, Julie, I'm, it's class about to start in a minute. I, I need to get my stuff ready. She's like, Mr. Ecker, it's very, very important. Can we talk outside the classroom? I said, okay, let's talk. So we went outside the classroom, and she says, uh, Mr. Eckert, I just want to say you really hurt me by, you know, what you said. I said, what I say? I said that a comment you made about my arm, you know, hurt me a lot. I said, hurt? Why did it hurt you? I made a joke. She's like, well, Mr. Eckert, I, I don't have an arm. So I thought, oh, here we go. More messing around with me. This is, this is preposterous, okay? Now, it's important to remember that this is four months into the school year, Okay, and Julie sat in the front row, directly in my line of sight. So what she was saying was an impossibility. So to catch her out, I reached to her jean jacket to grab her hand. I said, cut it out, Julie. Grabbed her jean jacket, but instead of grabbing a hand, I felt a stump. Suddenly, ever the whole room started spinning. Julie runs off crying. I stagger back into the classroom. The class who'd been listening to this whole thing said, oh, Mr. Eckert, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad, Mr. Eckert. She hides it really well by what she wears. You know, a lot of us didn't even know about it, you know, for a long time. But they said, you know, so uh, it turns out, sadly, unfortunately, she had been born with a birth defect. I told the administration what happened. I, I called her parents, profusely apologized. Everything turned out okay. But it was unbelievable. How in the world could that have happened? You know? And then to top everything off, I was the JV basketball coach. Ten games, winless. So that's it. High school teaching is out. I don't want to do that anymore. So I uh, wasn't sure what to do next. You know? no, still no ministry doors had opened. I wasn't sure. So now uh, Dad made a suggestion. The FBI. He had been a DEA agent. So this appealed to me at the time because I was single. I thought, well, this would impress the ladies probably. So I inquired and learned that they weren't currently hiring for a special agent position, but they were hiring for a support position called the investigative specialist, where you'd conduct uh, surveillance in support of the counterintelligence program. So the recruiter said, this will be a great, you know, if you take this, a great stepping stone for you to be a special agent. Uh, this turned out not to be the case. I was slightly deceived. Um, so after taking the position, I learned, you know, that they weren't hiring from the support ranks at the time. Uh, so I was assigned to New York and worked in that position for about two years. And by the way, I celebrate 27 years working in New York City as a federal employee this month. So, uh, thank you. So uh, during this time, I met my wife, Debbie, uh, via a mutual friend of our mother's named Lucille Cronin. So she had encountered my mom at a flea market. And sometimes I think, what if they were looking the other way? Like, I might be married to someone else, right? <laughs> but I do believe that God orchestrated this whole thing and had planned it. So Lucille sees my mom and uh, they're chatting and she <coughs> says, is Scott married? I know just the girl for him. She carries herself like a queen. <laughs> to this day, we don't really quite know what that means. Like her regal bearing. So... I arranged to meet the queen at the Calvary Chapel Philadelphia bookstore on a Sunday morning after uh, one of the church services. The Lucille's daughter, Colleen, whom we both knew, was going to make the introduction. So 
after the service is over, I went, you know, well, I, I didn't know what to think, you know what I mean? I hope, hope it turns out all right. But, you know, I, I went to the bookstore, waited for 15 minutes, no show. Now, it turns out that she was sitting with Colleen on a bench out in front of the bookstore op- uh, entrance, which was not the agreement. <laughs> so I was preparing to abort when I saw Colleen appear around the shelf. So I knew it would be following, and I braced myself. First thing I saw of Debbie was her sandaled foot as it appeared behind, uh, past the shelf. It was an attractive foot. Fortunately for me, so was the rest of what came around the shelf. So our first date took place the following Saturday. We discussed marriage six weeks later, and we're engaged six months later. When you know, you know. Although I'd never let my kids do that. <laughs> no, you gotta know that person a little better than that. So in 1998, I decided to apply to be a DEA agent. Uh, I did this in order to get Asian experience that I could then use to ultimately reapply for the FBI agent. Okay, you're not gonna hire me from the support ranks? You know, I'll show you. You know, and that became a quest. I'll do whatever it takes. So. Got the job, I was again assigned to New York. Uh, the job was not boring. In my four years, I got to participate in car chases and foot chases, you know, draw, draw your gun on bad guys, cuff them up. I got cuffed by the NYPD. I was doing a surveillance on this, this bad guy and he made me and then he did what I came to learn was called a gun run where they mess with you and say, hey, I see a guy waving a gun around in this black car on this such and a block. So I'm just sitting there and an NYPD van pulls up behind me. I see five guys jump out. They rush over, one guy's like banging on the, banging on the door with his flashlight or his billy club or whatever. So I unlock it. Before I get a chance to even explain the situation, I'm yanked out, thrown against the car, cuffed up. I had to say, uh, hey, uh, I'm a DEA agent. You know, my creds are right back in there. If you want to look at them and you know, there's a radio in there. I could call an NYPD sergeant over to vouch for me, so they uncuffed me after a little bit. Uh, I once held a suitcase with, uh, I remember, $300,000 in cash in it, which we were going to use as flash money for a buy bust. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, at the time, you know, I, could buy a, I could buy a house with this. <laughs> if I just walk out of here, that would have been a mistake, so I didn't do it, but I've never held so, just to hold so much cash in your hand. So I got married five weeks into my DEA training class. Our wedding date was set, and of course, that's when they offered me the class date. And I've heard horror stories about people turning it down. Oh, I'm gonna turn this one down, and they never get another call. So I said, oh, I'm gonna take it. So five weeks into my class, I drove back, we got married, uh, and then we had to go all the way back down to Quantico. So our honeymoon trip to London and Paris was postponed for a year became our first year anniversary trip. Debbie came down to Quantico with me and she spent the nights alone in a hotel. At nine o'clock, I had to go back to, to uh, the base. So, um, sad. In 2002, I applied for the, the FBI agent position. This time it was in the hiring push post 9-11 and I got the job, hired at long last, the quest was over, the objective achieved. I was assigned to the counterintelligence division where I worked for 19 years doing, you know, chasing spies. Unfortunately, the work is classified, so I can't talk about anything interesting that I did. Uh, again, I got New York, requested it because it gave me a little control of my destiny. Nobody wants it. Oh, I don't want to work in New York. It's horrible. So 
At least that way I could kind of be close to home. Uh, our first child was born in May 2001, Ashley, and Lauren followed on Christmas Day 2003, which was her due date, which we could not believe. She actually came on Christmas Day. Now, she's not necessarily happy about it because she feels like she's swallowed up in Christmas, although we do make sure that we celebrate her separately so she's not forgotten about and do a part of the day that's just for her. Uh, during the DEA years, we lived in Plainsboro, New Jersey, and attended Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Uh, in 2002, just before FBI Quantico training, we moved from Plainsboro to the compound in Newtown. I was made an offer I could not refuse by my in-laws. They would subdivide their land and give us five acres of prime Newtown land on which we could build a house. It was amazing. So at this point, we decided to start attending First Baptist Church of Newtown, later Grace Point, later moved to here. Uh, it was located just five minutes away from where we lived on State Street. This way the kids could be involved in church due to the close proximity to it. Um, in 2006, three years into my FBI agent career, my sister Carolyn came over uh, with a CD she got at church with a brief message on it called George Street. Uh, she thought I'd like the story. And I don't know if you guys were there, but you know, I told this story before in church. It's about a pastor who encounters numerous people uh, all around the world who came to know the Lord and enter full-time service, impacted numerous other lives after having had an encounter with a little old man handing out tracts on George Street in Sydney, Australia. So when I listened to this message and I was inspired. I thought, you know, I can do that. I could do that in Manhattan on my lunch break. So I started, I got, I got some tracts and I started handing out tracts to people uh, and then trying to segue to spiritual conversations. Uh, subsequently, I decided to drop the tracks because people would just turn them down and that would be the end of it. So I, I changed my approach and I decided to just go with a straight question. So I approach and I say, excuse me, can I ask you a question? Most people probably think, oh, for directions, okay. So then I say, look, I try to ask one person, at least one person this every day, uh, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And many people are like taken aback, but they're intrigued by it. And a lot of people actually, in telling me, instead of telling me to get lost, although people do say that, you know, they'll, be, they'll answer the question. Well, yeah, I think I would be. You know, well, why? Well, I'm a good guy, I think. And it leads to conversations. So work permitting, I take walks during my 45-minute lunch break and try to initiate conversations and share the gospel with people. Uh, and I've been able to do this for the past 16 years. And over the years, I've had numerous encounters. And many times, uh, it's been obvious that God led me to a particular person. I remember once approaching a woman outside of a hospital. And, uh, you know, after I asked her the question, she almost immediately started crying, started sobbing. And uh, she was a nurse, and she went and told me, a complete stranger who, who approached her on the street, about having had an abortion when she was a young woman and being haunted about it to that very day. And she said, you know, could I be forgiven for doing something like that? Could there be forgiveness? And I told her, absolutely and gave her the good news about the gospel. I also remember asking a girl who was sitting on a ledge outside of a store this question, and she just stared at me blankly. I felt like, felt like forever. She just looked at me, and I think, like, did I say something wrong? Was there something on my face? Finally, she said, I cannot believe you just asked me that. I literally was just talking to my friend about this subject, my coworker, in the store before I came out for my break. I can't believe you just asked me that question. 
And I'd hear a variation of this, you know, a number of times. You know, uh, there was once a guy who's like, this is the second time I've been asked this this week. I'm a waiter over there in that restaurant, and there was a pastor that came and was at my table, and he asked me that same question. Now you ask it to me. I said, well, obviously God's trying to get through to you. You know, it should be pretty obvious to you. So to me, God's leading in situations like that is crystal clear. A recent example in which it appears that God led was uh, my lunch session was over, didn't talk to anybody. So I thought, well, let me grab a slice of pizza you know, before I go back to the office. So went to the pizza place, went to get my favorite plain pizza, and this pizza was burnt beyond recognition as pizza. <laughs> so I said, There's, they can't be serious and expect I'm gonna spend money on this thing. I said, I'll just do a couple walks around the block while they sell this off to people less discriminating, I guess, and then I'll come back and get some, some pizza. So I walk outside, and where there had just been empty sidewalk was standing Nile. He later told me, like the river, was what his name. So I went up to Nile, and I asked him the question, and he said, oh, you know, I just started reading the Bible recently. I started at the beginning, and I've made my way all the way up to Job. And he said, um, you know, I believe there's got to be a higher power. He's like, look at the way we're made. There's just no way evolution is true. There's no way. Look at the complexity. So there's got to be a higher power. And I said, um, you're right. There is a higher power, and he's revealed himself in that book you're reading now and also in the incarnation, uh, Jesus Christ. So then I, you know, I gave him the gospel. And after he heard it, Nile told me he was convinced that our encounter was not a coincidence. And uh, I don't think so either. So did God burn that pizza? I think he might have. Uh, after I asked a tough-looking guy the question recently, he looks at me real quick, he goes, are you targeting me? <laughs> what? And I thought, oh, if you died, if you died now. I said, no, no, I'm not. Well, yes, but not to kill you, to give you some good news. So, you know, a lot of times people say, why are you asking this? Are you a pastor? And I say, no, I, I just take my faith seriously. You know, how can I not tell you about this? If, it's, if the Bible says it's true, how can I not tell you about it? Uh, in addition to being able to witness on the street, I've been able to share the gospel with coworkers. Um, Andre Cogdell was my operational support technician. Uh, so he would handle our squad's administrative work. And uh, I left that squad for a few years, and then I had the opportunity to come back. And uh, shortly after I returned, Andre was diagnosed with cancer and uh, things deteriorated pretty quickly. He stopped coming into work, he went into the hospital. We heard that he probably didn't have very long to live. So the squad said, well, we should go visit him, so let's all go together. So we were all gonna go in the same car. Then the last second, they said, you know, Scott, you've got such a long commute back to Pennsylvania, you, you just take your own car, you can just jet from the hospital instead of coming back to the, the office. So I said, okay, that's a good idea. So we left at the same time, I got to the lobby, and I'm waiting there, and uh, you know, they don't show up. So I'm waiting for it. So finally I called them, hey, what's up? They said, oh, our GPS took us to the wrong hospital. You know, we're not gonna be there for like, you just go in and talk to them, we'll be there in like 20 minutes. So I walked in with Andre, and he, uh, he lifts his gown up to show me his leg, which is now down, shriveled to the bone. And he says, you know, I, I'm scared to die, but you know, I'm, I'm hoping I'll see my mom again. So I thought the Lord just tell me, say something now. So I told him, you know, Andre, I don't fear death, you know, because of what Jesus, you know, my faith in Jesus, what he's done for me. You don't have to either. You know, you can be sure even if you die, you're going to live on eternally if you put your faith in him because of his death for you. And almost no sooner did I finish 
sharing the gospel with him, then my coworkers appeared at the door. So uh, Andre died the next night. And uh, I learned at Andre's memorial service that uh, another OST who was a Christian had also been witnessing to him. This woman talked about walking in for a visit at the memorial service and seeing this woman by his bed pleading with him to accept the Lord. So I'm convinced that God orchestrated this, both my coming back to the squad when I did and those bad GPS directions in order to give Andre an opportunity to hear the gospel and uh, put his faith in him. So, you know, maybe in those hours before his death, he reflected on what we talked about or what that other woman told him about and he accepted the Lord. So I hope that I'll see Andre again in heaven someday. I hope he did make that decision. Uh, I've even had the opportunity to witness to some people we've arrested. Uh, I was working a protection detail once for a foreign national who uh, we arrested and he decided to cooperate. So we were at a military base where he was being protected. And I was what we were just doing a walk for him to stretch his legs. So I was on one side of him, uh, another agent on the other side. And as we're walking out of nowhere, he brings up his curiosity about Christianity. I wonder what that's all about. What's Christianity all about? What do they believe? So, oh, there's like a gigantic open door. So I went and told him. So I got to witness to him and to the guy who was stuck on the other side. He had to hear it too. So I got to talk to two people that way. So I sometimes think, you know, did God have this in mind for me from the beginning? You know, is this why the pastorate didn't work out? You know, by opening certain doors and closing other doors, you know, did he lead me to this job in this city for this purpose to be able to share the gospel. Um, was he preparing this for, for this throughout my life? You know, some things seem to suggest it. You know, I always had a fascination with New York. You know, Spider-Man lived there. And uh, it's this cool urban jungle, you know, you get lost in. I always thought it was super cool. Uh, also, when I'd hear announcements about street witness, uh, Calvary Chapel Philly and their street witnessing program on Saturday nights at South Street, my heart would burn inside me to want to do it, even though I never did. So, uh, you know, working for the FBI in New York gave me an opportunity to witness daily that maybe other people don't have. You know, I get to walk outside in these streets teeming with people and try to initiate conversations and share the gospel. So I think, well, not I think, I believe that God sent Carolyn, my sister Carolyn, over with that CD. So, uh, you know, God's also at work in my life now in, in different ways. Like uh, two years ago, I asked Debbie on a Saturday morning, like, you know, is God ever going to give me an opportunity to teach? You know, I, I enjoy teaching, you know, I, uh, it would be nice if I could do it at some point. That very night, we had a small group at the Troys, and we're chatting before we get started. And Stacy says, you know what, I think we're going to stop watching videos and get somebody to teach live. I think we, I, we prefer that. I was like, what in the world? I'll die. If you want me, I'll do it. You know? And then, like, other things started happening, doors opening for service. I had the opportunity at work to take a position called foreign liaison that gives me a little bit more time flexibility to serve a church. Then all these other opportunities start presenting themselves to work with the kids' ministry, the point to become an elder. Uh, I'm hoping that I can find even greater opportunities as life goes on to serve. I'm, I'm you know, eligible to retire now, and in three years, they're going to push me out the door, mandatory retirement age 57. So I'm hoping that God gives me some sort of second act somewhere. You know, I'm praying he opens another door of service that I can do after I retire. So I never did become a pastor, but I'd like to think that rather than it being a mistake on my part, that God led me to the place that I am today. Now, I've encountered people and been able to share the gospel with people that I never would have, people who would have never even entered a church had I moved to Cleveland to become a youth pastor. Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or as the NLT puts it, 
We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So Pastor Dave spoke about this in a message in July when he, uh, from Romans 9, he posed the question, does God decide my destiny or do I? And the answer was yes, both are true. Uh, a good principle he mentioned was trust God in the choices he makes, seek God in the choices you make. So throughout my life when I was at these various crossroads, you know, I tried to make decisions that I thought were right at the time, sought God in prayer, and uh, asked for the Holy Spirit's guidance. I was watching a documentary a few years ago uh, and one of the group members, about a musical group, and one of the group members said the following quote. There's a philosopher who says, as you live your life, it appears to be anarchy and chaos and random events, non-related events, smashing into each other and causing this situation and then, then this happens and it's overwhelming and it just looks like, what in the world is going on? And later, when you look back at it, it looks like a finely crafted novel. But at the time, it don't. The novelist crafting the story of our lives is God. Johnny Erickson Tata, who became a quadriplegic after a diving accident when she was 17, says something similar in her book, Pain and Providence, in a section where she writes about God's providence in Joseph's life, and I'll read it to you. I draw a lot of inspiration from the story of Joseph. There were plenty of unfortunate mishaps in Joseph's life, like being tossed by his envious brothers into a pit and left to die. But later on, after more mishaps, Joseph told his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I like that word intended. He is a God of intention. He has a purpose, a target, a goal, and a plan. Joseph's problems did not catch God off guard. From the beginning, God calculated for Joseph to experience all these things. Why? For the salvation of others. God is not a sweep-up boy who follows you with a dustpan and brush, second-guessing how everything will fit into a divine pattern for good. God's hands stay on the wheel of your life from start to finish so that everything follows his intention for your life. This means your trials have more meaning, much more than you realize. Consider this. If Joseph had not been sold to those caravan traders by his wicked brothers, he would not have been sold as a slave to Pharaoh. And if Joseph had not become Pharaoh's right-hand man, no one would have built giant grain silos to ward off the famine. And if the famine hadn't happened, Jacob and his family would never have come to Egypt for food and safety. And if Jacob's family weren't in Egypt, there would have been no slave laborers. And if no slaves, no exodus, and no giving of the law to Moses, and no promised land, and finally, no line of Judah from which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come. What an amazing example of the providence of God. It is enthralling to see how the troubles of one young man named Joseph could kickstart a whole chain of earth-shaking events which would ultimately lead to our salvation. Joseph's story could be yours. Only heaven will reveal the incredibly complex intertwining of events in which you have played a pivotal role. Like Joseph, you may not be able to discern it at the time, but God has it all in hand. He has it all in control, and you, dear friend, are needed in his marvelous plan to spread his kingdom in your corner of the world. So like Johnny, I hope that in whatever setting or situation you find that God has placed you in life, You'll use the opportunities presented in order to serve him and further his kingdom. Like I sang in 1977, you were a promise to be anything he wants you to be. As I heard a pastor say recently, you don't need to be in full-time service in order to serve God full-time. Scott, we have a few minutes. If anybody on the back end wants to ask uh, Scott a couple of questions, you share a lot of really good stuff with us. I just had a comment. Your 
You mentioned that you were born on the same day as George Washington, which is pretty high, but your daughter was born on the same day as Jesus. Uh, much higher. <laughs> much, much higher. I never even thought, well, I, I knew that, but I never actually made that connection. You're right. I'll tell her that. <laughs> uh, what were some of the answers you got when you asked people if they would go to heaven? Uh, well, a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, I'll go. And like, Why? I'm a good person, you know. And you know, like it's, that, that's the most common answer is I'm a good person. I, you know, I've helped out at the soup kitchen. My wife and I do this and that, you know, with the homeless. And then, then I follow up with, well, you know, have you read the Bible? You know, ever read any of the Bible? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I read. Well, you know, according to the Bible, there's only one way to be sure you're going to heaven. Do you know what it is? And it's not by being a good person, believe it or not, because nobody's high enough standards. So being a good person's the the biggest one. Oh, then you get people who are just, they know for sure they're not going. Nope, I'm not going. I know I'm not going. And then you have to take a different approach. Like, well, you know, you can. Like, no, 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 not what I do. No, you can't really. There's nothing you, that disqualifies you. So. Were we ever feel restrained by uh, your time restraints, like to get back from lunch? But you're in the midst of a really good conversation. Yeah. A couple hours ago, and your boss is like, "Hey, where you been?" Uh, you know, you, fortunately, in in the New York office, as opposed to some smaller offices, one of the advantages of so many of us, you're not quite under the microscope as much. And I've always, yeah, I want to have integrity. And when those situations have happened, I've been like, I'm going to put this in in the back end, you know, unless I was like, I had a meeting or something, then in those situations I've had to just speed up. Well, and I'm not, I, I don't mean to question your integrity, but no. like, like the thought process, um, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody, uh, you're, you're trying to save their life, so to speak. Do you, do you think about that or is like... Uh, yeah, yeah, usually if I, if I was in a good conversation, I will keep, if I don't have a meeting or some hard thing to do, I will keep it going and I will say, okay, I now have to put in 20 extra minutes at the end of the day, you know, so as to give the taxpayer, you know, <laughs> their, due. their due. And there, and there is that kind of flex, you know, that kind of flexibility. There, it's not like what it's forty-seven minutes. Where were you? Right. You know, if it were, then I probably not have initiated it. I mean, there have been times where I've been like, oh, oh like I know it's I need to go back. And there's a guy who would have been perfect to approach, but it's like I, I can't. You know, I, I guess I have to do it another time. Or maybe he'll be there again. It's hard. I'll tell you what, it's hard to do it, more hard than when I started. Now that everybody's, their heads, it used to be people, you could make eye contact with people. It would be so much easier, just they'd be, you know, people watching or doing something, you could be like, oh, hey. Now everybody is, so I'm finding myself having to interrupt people, which I hate doing. But I'm like, well, all right, I'm just going to do it. Because, you know, my wife says, you know, they're, they're all messing around. They're not doing anything important, usually. You know, you can interrupt them. You know, <laughs> you know it's not like they're doing something important. Oh, I don't want to interrupt them. Well, I was checking, you know, you know, Instagram. So, But I do feel uncomfortable interrupting somebody when their fingers are flying on the keyboard. Well, thanks, Scott. We really Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks. All right. All right.